1: You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch here fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense.
0: Hi, I'm Madison Malone-Kircher.
1: And I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to I See Why Am I. In case you missed it. Slate's podcast about internet culture.
0: Rachel, I have to just come clean at the top here. I was fully unplugged and in the woods for this long weekend, and uh, it was a goddamn delight. But I don't really know what happened online. Madison, I feel like we have to
1: talk about the fact that you keep just disappearing into the woods. And A, never taking me. And B, completely ignoring your responsibility to be online. (laughs) Two times. It's happened twice. That's more times than I've done it in the past, (laughs) however many months this show's been going on. Well, you didn't miss much. And I say that as somebody who was also trying not to be online this weekend because it was a long weekend. And um, sometimes you just have to unplug.
0: Yeah, Rachel, sometimes you do. Okay, I'm not leaving the vicinity of New York City. I'm back now. You're back now. And we have both um... been greeted by a truly cursed object a video of Mark Zuckerberg, CEO Mm -hmm. of Facebook, possible um, reptile, uh, (laughs) (laughs) possible cryptid, (laughs) Uh, riding some sort of surfboard wakeboard, waveboard, holding an American flag like he is George Washington. I just, I have a lot of
1: questions about this video. Who filmed the video? How did they film the video? What is he standing on and how is it how is it working? I don't understand water sports, like famously cannot swim, so anything on the water, I'm like, okay, I can recognize a boat and that's it. But like, what is this thing that, is he surfing? There's clearly some kind of motor involved. Why did he pick this song? Well, I was going to say, Rachel, we've, we've buried the lead. The song, which I think he picked the wrong song. If you're going to pick a song for the 4th of July, it should be I'm Proud to Be an American, which, you know, no nationalism, but that song is a bop, you know? Instead, the song
0: Zuckerberg went with is John Denver's Country Roads. Take me home.
1: Okay, my last question. Is this another prequel
0: for a presidential run? Honestly, maybe. It's possible that this is, in fact, the harbinger of the apocalypse is another theory I'm going with.
1: I think I prefer the apocalypse over a Zuckerberg presidential run. I'm going to be honest. Because also, if this is a like a little prelude for a presidential run, who is
0: it appealing to? <laughs> Could also be a victory lap post uh, the antitrust... Oh, yeah. Facebook uh, meltdown.
1: <laughs> I think that one makes the most sense. This is obviously making fun of all of us because this, this looks like an expensive sport as well. This doesn't seem like something simple.
0: Yeah. some light like Googling and I have learned that the device he's riding on is called a wake foil. And uh, the one he's on uh, retails for about 12 grand. Nothing says I'd like to have a beer with you. More than a 12 grand <laughs> wake foil
1: board. A term Jesus we definitely Christ.
0: knew before today.
1: Oh, yes, hmm famously.
0: Today, though, we are going to travel back in time a little bit. Even further back than the last time there was a photo of Mark Zuckerberg performing <laughs> a water sport uh, that went viral. Never forget the sunscreen photo. Could not forget. Today, we are traveling back to the past, a simpler time, before the pandemic, before the 2016 election, to when Twitter was just a little bit of actual fun. on october 27th in 2015 asia zola king tweeted y'all want to hear a story about why me and this bitch here fell out it's kind of long but it's full of suspense and the rest was twitter history
1: what followed that let's be real iconic first tweet was what's come to be known as hashtag the story it ended up spanning nearly 150 tweets in its entirety. Zola has credited herself with creating what we now know as the thread. And it has now been made into a feature film starring Taylor Page, Riley Keogh, Coleman Domingo, and Nicholas Braun of Succession fame.
0: Hey, last month I went dancing at this cute spot in Florida where my roommate's girl made like five G's a night. Because my the shorter version of Hashtag the Story is as follows. Zola meets a woman, the uh, infamous bitch here, <laughs> uh, while waitressing at Hooters. The two hit it off when they discover they're both strippers, and the woman, her name is Jessica in the thread and Stephanie in the movie, invites Zola on a trip to Florida, promising a lucrative weekend of dancing in Tampa, What actually happens is Zola gets 48 hours of increasingly absurd and dangerous situations, including but not limited to a shootout, several back page ads, and Stephanie slash Jessica's boyfriend tossing himself off a balcony.
1: The movie Zola faithfully follows the events of the thread, and there's a lot to cover in this thread. But the thing about adapting 148 tweets into a 90-minute movie is that it's, um, some might say, challenging. There are some
0: holes you gotta fill, or not oh, fill.
1: Oh, yeah, and no one knows that better than Jeremy O'Harris, who along with the film's director, Janixa Bravo, adapted those 148 tweets into the movie screenplay. And we are absolutely thrilled because we have Jeremy with us today to talk through the challenges of making what might be one of the world's best extremely online movies.
0: Today on the show, we are talking with Jeremy O'Harris, producer, actor, multi-Tony-nominated playwright, and the reason for the season here, the co-writer of the screenplay for Zola, the legendary 148-tweet Twitter thread, uh, turned into feature film out this month. Jeremy, welcome. Welcome.
2: Hi, welcome. What, what, did I just say welcome to you? That's insane. I'm crazy.
0: Thank you for welcoming us. Honestly, <laughs> when you go to the movies and you, the ticket taker's like, enjoy the show, and you're like, you too.
2: Yes. <laughs> that was where I am right now. I've just been so chaotic the last like week. My brain is mush, and that's where we're supposed to be at the end of June.
1: <laughs> honestly, though, it might be homophobic if it wasn't.
2: <laughs> Absolutely absolutely I actually think it's homophobic that you guys are demanding that i speak to you after pride
1: <laughs> honestly cancel us this is it this is the end of the podcast jeremy o harris has personally canceled i see why am i this is why we invited you on the show and now we're gonna get a netflix deal out of it and we're all doing great here
0: <laughs> okay the dyke in the room with like a little a little credit here <laughs>
2: Well, as as someone who's been canceled multiple times, I can tell you guys being canceled is not the worst thing that can happen to you. It's actually more <laughs> of a conspiracy that people who are millionaires and billionaires like to complain about. Um, but we can talk about that on a different podcast.
0: <laughs> uh, I wish it were this podcast. Bringing it Bringing it back around. Do you remember the first time you saw the Zola thread, your immediate thought?
2: Yes. I was at my friend Dante's house in the hills and I was reading it tweet by tweet. It was about halfway through, not even halfway, it was like 30 tweets in and someone had retweeted one of them. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever read. And I was like, what even is this? And they were like, if you're not reading the Zola thread right now, I don't know what you're doing. And it, it blew me away. I mean, it felt like the richest writing I had read in a decade, because I am constantly bemoaning the fact that prose has left that sense of liveness and freedom that it had in the early nineties when Kathy Acker was writing, right? Or when like uh, multiple other specifically queer writers were telling their stories, not using literary conventions that were um, de de rigueur, but using the literary conventions of their communities. And that's what hooked me. And I remember I tweeted at her about Three quarters of the way through, and she responded to me and then kept tweeting.
0: (laughs) What was the response?
2: Here's the thing that is the problem. Wherein I've told this story, and people are like, The receipts, please. And I'm like, Listen, my memory is the only receipt I can give (laughs) you right now, but know that it's real.
0: That's the spirit of the whole thread, though. The memory (laughs) is the receipt.
1: Jeremy, I'm curious. So you described seeing this thread, as we all did at the time. And it was just a live communal experience. And I'm curious at what point you were like, this could be and should be a movie.
2: I think that I, I, you know, whenever I read almost anything that strikes my fancy, I'm like, this should exist in a form that I can control, right? <laughs> um, in some way, shape, or form. Or have a hand in, right? And I think it was from the minute that she said, Lost in the Sauce, I think that was like I want to like canonize that line. This needs to be a play. This needs to be a movie.
1: Okay, how much of like do you remember of that like original when you were reading it and you had like images in your mind of like it could look like this and this and this actually like ended up in the movie.
2: Um, I think that one thing that definitely stayed from my very be- from the very beginning was this moment that was really really powerful to me, where I was like, how is it that this woman has tweeted so many amazing details about this story, but has ignored the 15 hour drive from Detroit to Tampa. Like, Um, I was like, because there must've been something that happened in that car that won't write. Like that must've been the thing. Cause I've been in a car with white people before and there's always some moment, specifically when a song comes on the radio where you're like, y'all ain't right, y'all ain't right.
0: I'm just gonna step out of the zoo. (laughs)
2: And so the first scene I wrote for the movie when Genix hired me was like my test scene, and the test scene was—it's basically still in the movie where she talks about like this dookie ass draws. Um, I'm not getting Giardia on account of no hoe.
0: I was like, look, if you gonna slide up and down a pile all night in some doodle ass draws, clean your butt. Like (laughs) how you some wet words, fool? Cause nobody looking to get Giardia on account of no hoe. Like not again.
2: That part was one of the first things I ever wrote for the movie, and Genex was like, "This is absolutely the energy. This is absolutely the thing." And for a long time, that was the first scene in the movie.
1: I love that.
2: The, that's exclusive the content.
1: is what came. To, I love that so much because that's such an like a line. I was like, "Wow, this is so familiar in so many ways." <laughs> Jeremy mentioning
0: the the drive from Detroit to Tampa that just isn't in the thread sort of brings up a point Rachel and I have been talking a lot about after seeing the film, that Twitter threads and tweets by design can never be truly comprehensive. So how does that impact the writing and adapting process in a story where you know, like, there are chunks that are missing?
2: I mean, I think it demands that you and your collaborators think about it in different ways, right? And think about it in, like, canonical ways. And so when Janix and I started talking about what things this was like, we went to our theater history first, right? We have a shared theater theatrical history. So we thought about experimental theater like Hamlet Machine, which Janixa directed. And then I started thinking a lot about poetry and epic poetry and the fact that in Greek theater, most, a lot of things left are left unsaid. And so we were like, great, we're doing a Greek adaptation. We're doing an adaptation of like Homer, thank you Black Twitter for reminding us of the Odyssey. Um, and we're also doing an, uh, an adaptation of these like, early 20th century novels, wherein um, in response to the romances, in response to the Victorians, a lot of novelists were like, let's pare it down.
1: One of the things I really loved about the movie is that so many movies about the internet kind of rely on these weird kind of cliche motives, like text bubbles on screen or like kind of conspicuous text abbreviations in dialogue. And I'm curious how y'all approached making the movie kind of embody the experience of being online without falling into these tropes.
2: Well, I think part of the reason why is that Jenix and I didn't actively try to make it about feeling like you were online. We intuitively did it, um, if that makes sense. We we knew what tropes we weren't going to use. So, like um, today, me, Taylor, and Riley have a really funny group thread. Which, if it wouldn't get us canceled, maybe I would say the name of it. <laughs> um, but it's our favorite group thread from um, since the movie, and um, we just reminisce together. We like you know conspire together complain together and today uh, one of the reminiscences was uh, Taylor saying do y'all know remember the line in the script that was like in this movie let's be clear there will be no neon at all this is not a neon journey and i was like i do remember that cuz i remember the day we who put it in the script and That for me was like very indicative of the things we, the way in which you started making the rules for how we would write it, is that we made the rules for what we wouldn't do. So we said we would not do text bubbles on screen. We would not do like a neon colored journey. It would be like a very specific journey that felt idiosyncratic and more practical, right? And we started going back to our modes of making. We were like, if you're doing a text message to someone, what even is a text message? And a text message is in some ways an aside, and in other ways, it's a monologue, you know, um, it's not necessarily a dialogue because you're not really listening to the other person yet. You know, you can't see their expression. So you're just expressing. And I think that's how it started to feel more like the Internet, because we would just say, like, this is the thing that has to happen. How does it feel and how can it feel like that in a way that we haven't seen before?
0: Jeremy, did you guys always know you wanted to use the like Twitter <laughs> noise to to simulate tweeting?
2: Not always, but it is in the script after draft two. Like, I'm looking at draft two and for every tweet, we use the Twitter tweet sound um, in order to, like, footnote our source material, right?
0: So we get to Florida and show up at this nasty motel.
2: Don't worry about the smell. Ain't nothing a little air freshener can't handle.
0: Oh! We gonna be at the club all night. This room for Derek. Do not trip
2: trait. Yeah. Um so cuz you know I'm academic in that very specific way, Junixa is very very has a very um auditory sense of um visualizing, right? It's um it's how she, all of her movies have such powerful and sort of in some ways oppressive scores. And I think because she knew she wanted to step away from score in this one in the same like loud way, she was like, I don't know that I want to do that in this one. I want to experiment with silence, but let's have that same sense of rhythm that comes from the (laughs) sound we haven't heard in decades. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) I love the moment in the film where the Reddit scene appears It kind of uh, captures the way you'll be reading something on Twitter and then find yourself on like six different platforms. You know how the Internet doesn't occur like solely on Twitter or solely on Instagram. Can you talk to us about uh, that decision to to put that in halfway through?
2: Yes. Um, So that was a really important scene to both Janix and I. It was a scene that Janik said, been like, I need this scene in the movie. And then the minute she said, I was like, oh, I absolutely need the scene in the movie. And then I was like, and then if it's going to be Reddit, it has to feel different than the other movie. She's like, it absolutely has to feel different. I was like, because the movie we're adapting is a story that was told on Twitter, but a story that was told on Reddit is told in a very different way. It's kind of dingy. Like a story told on Twi- on, on Reddit feels nasty. The like interface is gross. You know what I mean? Like, if yes, yes, yes. you just aren't mm-hmm. as rich. Um, and so we were like, this is what it would look like, you know? So like, that's part of the reason why at the end, Genixa and, um, and Joy, our editor, kept the like film reel, you know, like, you know how it like sort of burns out at the end? Mm-hmm. Um, they kept that because it wanted to have that sort of frayed, unfinished feeling of a Reddit thread. And also we wanted it to feel like a Reddit thread that you were like, okay, you know what? Let me get back to the story. Cause like, it's like someone commented like, but have you read Jessica's version? Mm-hmm. And she, and go to it. And then you're like, you know what? I'm over this. This don't feel right. And you can go back to the real one. But for us, that was really important because you know, one of the major things that happened that frustrated both of us in the aftermath of Asia's story being told was the sense that every white person who was watching it and not just white people, some black people as well, felt the need to say like, but what really happened? so it allowed us to give that audience that's feeling uncomfortable at that point in the movie about like the legitimacy of our narrator or the honesty of our narrator is a chance to be like, well, here's what she actually said. She literally said on Reddit that Asia, this woman only made $1 stripping. Nobody liked her.
1: She made $1. Everybody loved me. Reason to be a jealous bitch number
2: two. What, in what reality (laughs) is that possible?
1: I guess kind of speaking of reality, there were parts of the threat that Asia later revealed were dramatized, like the jump off the balcony and like somebody getting shot. And both of those moments are in the movie. And I guess I'm kind of curious as to what the discussion was like as to, I guess like how
2: close to the thread to stay that was a lot of conversation for us. We need to treat this like Toni Morrison. We need to treat this like Homer and not reject um, the beauty of the fact that the internet fell in love with Asia's version of the story. So whether it's real or not, we should lean into it. And if anything, we can heighten those moments or massage those moments around a reality that accentuates one of the things we were most interested in, which is the fact that whether or not some parts were dramatized or not, this was a story about a woman who was very young, um, this 19-year-old child going through a traumatic event with someone she trusted, and owning that trauma by telling it in her way. That is what we decided to like lean into. And I think that there's a moment in the gunshot scene that um, leans into something that she said in an interview that we had the raw tapes to that isn't in the Twitter thread, that we were like, oh, that's a part of the trauma. And she rejected leaning into that to make herself the baddest bitch in the game, the entire story, as well she should. But we were like, let's let them have a glimpse of that moment before allowing us to go where we're gonna go with the story, which is where she went with the story.
1: Yeah, the way y'all kind of included that danger and this, like, there's this undercurrent of anxiety that just keeps building and building and building up that isn't necessarily, like, always... Exp- I'm thinking of that scene where she's, like, in the car and they see, like, a Black man being arrested and you just see it and then it's gone. And it's was just, like, really striking
2: to me. Oh, that means a lot. I mean, that moment was very personal to Jay and I'm sure she'll talk more about it, but she had a cousin who while we were writing the script was, um, was murdered by the police. Mm. And she, I think thinking about the, like, um, the casualness that, that that, 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 that stories like that have become in our vision of America and how often those, um, those traumas and those violences are talked about, and how little the traumas and violences towards black women are talked about mm. meant that she was like, How about we like bring both of those in? So we start thinking about those dangers and start thinking about those violences as concurrent, you know, in the ways in which we see black bodies and black humanity as disposable. Mm. And what's funny is that that scene itself caused a lot of drama on set, um, because we were shot on location in Tampa, and one of Our crew members sent an email to everyone about that scene existing and said, like, they refused to work on the movie if the scene was there, Um, which was wild, you know, because that's that's the environment this movie was coming in. So it means a lot to hear you say that because I just want to uplift the fact that Janixa, Janixa authored that scene, authored it beautifully and also um, had to fight against her own crew to maintain it.
1: That is wild. But yeah, I think it really does capture. I mean, I was thinking about the way like you just you're scrolling on Twitter and you just see somebody's name. That's like a hashtag. And you're like, there's another one to add to this like ever growing list. And it is casual in a way that is like deeply dehumanizing in so many ways where you you just can't keep up. And but it still hurts. And so, I I, yeah. Oh, my God. You're
2: making me think of something right now. And I just have to see if I can find it really quickly. Because if I do, it'll make this even richer. So the first version of our screenplay started out with this. And I'm just going to tell you guys what it is. It's going to be a Slate exclusive. Um, but um, the we were trying, a question people kept asking was like, energy, energy, energy. How can you add more energy to the script? And so mm-hmm. there was one draft of the script where we had like a bunch of uh, interruptions from actual Twitter that day that we read it in order to like engage it. So it mm-hmm. starts with, on black on October 27, 2015, over 500 million tweets were published and read on Twitter. And then we see every tweet that we, every tweet that we found from that day that struck us. So the first one was a Britney Spears tweet saying, Ad Adele, I'll trade you two tickets to my show for two tickets to yours. Stop by piece of me and say hello anytime. A tweet from Hillary Clinton where she reposted an Onion article where she said, I am fun by Hillary Clinton. And then she just <laughs> tweeted humorous. And then another tweet <laughs> from the actor Matt McGorry that said, when an officer assaults a sitting high school girl, like she's about to detonate a fucking bomb, hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag assault in Spring Valley High. And yet I remembered none of those tweets from that day. And yet I've never forgotten the Zola tweets. And like, you just articulated something that's very present about the ways in which we have these collective memories from Twitter. Like I know we all remember the dress, We don't remember Mm. anything else that happened that day. And I'm sure there was some hashtag about some Black person that was killed that day as well. Mm. Um, So thank you for uplifting that because that means a lot.
1: Of course. Um, Our last question. So at the film's premiere, Taylor Page kind of described Riley Keough's character as like being in Blackface the whole movie, which accurate. And Obviously, this kind of performance was around before the internet, but in many ways, the internet has kind of allowed white people access to black culture in a way that they like really previously didn't have because white people don't have black friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just kind of curious as to how you approached including that kind of dynamic in writing Keo's dialogue.
2: Well, I think that for me, that performance is so mundane and so a part of the everyday now. That it wasn't hard. It felt second nature. It felt like mm-hmm. um, me, just like uh, leaning into something that I had to see when Little Debbie was a trending rapper, when Krayshawn was a trending rapper, when Iggy mm-hmm. Azalea was a trailing, ra- uh, uh, you know, trending rapper, and how mm-hmm. like these women who were using affect and performance very similar to women that were actually born black, but also cartoonishly so, were a part of how I understood the world. And so I think that one moment that felt very much like the Iggy Azalea, um, Azalea Banks T.I. moment for me was something that that moment is when the day after they get on the bed, they're in bed together and um, Coleman's character walks in, X, and he's like, uh, how much did y'all make last night? And then Riley's character, Stephanie, gives him the stack of money. And she's like, we did all this. And he's like, oh, you did? And he like throws all this money at um, Asia like she's uh, disposable, but then kisses Riley on the head after Taylor had made it possible for her to do after Zola had made it possible for Stephanie to make this money, it was so crazy. Um, and it felt like to me that same dynamic that happens often inside of uh, spaces of appropriation where white women are kissed on the head by some black men and um black women are are disposed at the side and have money just thrown at them sort of willy nilly
1: the specific co-signing of like black men (laughs) like co-signing white women who are shitting on black women is yeah definitely definitely clicked for me
0: (laughs) (laughs) jeremy thank you so much for talking with us today this was
2: awesome Thank you for having me. I love this podcast so much and it feels like, I don't know, it feels like such an honor to be able to like uplift the fact that I've got to make this amazing story about a phenomenal woman based on her phenomenal, phenomenal piece of prose with my idol. And I just want people to know that because, you know, I think there might be some people who listen to this who just want to be like, that boy can write his ass off. And I'm like, yeah, but I couldn't write a screenplay without Junixa. And it couldn't have been a film without Joy. So I just want to say that so that when people leave this podcast, they know that. And I think you guys for giving me the opportunity to just be on here and say that.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that we got to do this.
2: that little nigga to come fucking take my bitch. What the fuck's wrong with you? Girl, you know I love you. No, she asked me
1: you want to hear a story about how me and this bitch here fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. That was Jeremy o. Harris, co-writer of the screenplay for Zola, which is out in theaters right now. And that is the show. We will be back in your feeds on Saturday. So definitely subscribe. And please leave a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about us. Mention us at all the house parties y'all are now going to. You can also follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is where you can DM us your questions about the Duggar family or literally anything else. And as always, you can drop us a note at ICYMI at Slate.com. Who knows? We might have you on the show.
0: ICYMI is produced by Daniel Schrader. Our supervising producer is Derek John. Forrest Wickman is Slate's culture editor. And Gabe Roth is editorial director of audio. See you online. Or not.
2: Right. And if it's a black woman versus a white woman, we're going to believe the white woman first. Unless the white woman is Jessica. <laughs> because what was really wild about the <laughs> story... <laughs> <It> was wild beyond <laughs> <Younger>. that. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com.
3: It's my little escape.
2: Now Judy's the life of the party.
3: Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon.
2: Whoa. Take it easy, Judy.